Hello everyone, Kevin Markwick here again. Welcome to another Sound of the Picture House. I do hope you're enjoying them. Please let me know. It would be good to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Kevin Markwick. Or you can even email me on podcast at picturehouseupfield.com. If you can also find time for a quick review or a rating, that would be fab too. Now, in this episode, I was lucky enough to talk to the wonderful Samira Ahmed about her memories of going to the cinema all over the world. Um, Samira is a multi-award winning journalist and broadcaster and a visiting professor of journalism at Kingston University with a special focus on culture, politics and social change. She won Audio Broadcaster of the Year at the 2020 British Press Guild Awards for her work as a presenter of Front Row on Radio 4 and her podcast How I Found My Voice. Samira also presents the weekly programme Newswatch on BBC One. She presented the uh, three-part series Art of Persia, filmed in Iran for BBC Four and broadcast in June 2020. Samira writes regularly on culture and politics in newspapers and magazines including The Guardian, The Financial Times, Radio Times, New Statesman, The Mail on Sunday and The New Humanist. She was a presenter on Channel 4 News and Radio 4's The Today programme. Uh, more importantly though, uh, just kidding, Samira has won Celebrity Mastermind twice, including the Champion of Champion edition. Uh, I can highly recommend Samira's podcast actually, uh, How I Found My Voice, as well as the wonderful three-part series uh, Art of Persia, which you can still see on the BBC iPlayer. Samira is clearly a keen cinema goer and also a sci-fi nut. We had a lovely chat over Zoom and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. My, people come and go so quickly here. (laughs) Follow the yellow brick road. 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 Follow, 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 follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick, follow the yellow brick, follow the yellow brick road. You're out to see the wizards, the wonderful wizard of Oz. You'll find he is a wizard of wizards. Do you remember your first visit to the cinema? Well, the first cinema memory I have is being in a big cinema, possibly the Wimbledonadian, which was by a big local, you know, one of those 1930s proper giant screens. And it was The Wizard of Oz. So it must have been on, um, you know, I mean, it, this would have been very early 70s, maybe 71 or something, when I imagine all those old films did get re-releases or would just run on local prints. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that one was, uh, I saw that in the cinema also around that time in the mid 70s, early to mid 70s. So um, it was it was always being reissued, The Wizard of Oz. And it would you probably saw it in a double feature with Tom Thumb. Yes, that would make sense because that's one of the other early films I remember seeing, which, of course, at the moment you still can't get on um, DVD. And the thing about both is there's really dark terror in them. So the, the, the thing about The Wizard of Oz, and it is my first cinema memory, is I had actually got up and run down the aisle <laughs> in terror and stopped and turned back to look up at the screen. And it was the scene when the Wicked Witch reappears on top of a roof mm. and th- hurls a fireball at Scarecrow and sets fire to him and uh, the Tin Man Yeah, it's out. terrifying. And that and I Tom think... Thumb, I mean, there's they tie the hero to a whipping post, don't they? Oh, it's horrible. And torture him. And um, Terry Thomas and Peter Sellers 
as the as the as the bad guys. One yeah. one for you, two for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that would I didn't realize it was a double bill. But yeah, it was. It. it was. A, it went round for a long time, well into the seventies, which is extraordinary, really, when you think that you know you couldn't show a film from nineteen thirty nine now for a week, could you? It'd be impossible. Yeah. And you reckon that would have been Wimbledon, Odeon Wimbledon? Well. It, yeah. It depends how early it was in the 70s, because if I had an older brother who's five years older, mm. um, you know, I may have been taken younger. And we lived um, we lived um, between Wimbledon, South Wimbledon, and then we later moved to Norwood for a bit. So the th- cinemas that we did a circuit of was, there would have been the Wimbledon Odeon, there was a cinema on Tooting High Road, which is now a very large flagship chicken cottage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and right opposite it, there's what's now the... Well, was many years became the Bank of Baroda, but was a beautiful old 1930s cinema house. And my parents actually took me to see some Bollywood films there. It used okay. to run Bollywood films in the early 70s. Um, and then there was a big cinema in Streatham. So we would go to different venues between yeah. Tooting, Wimbledon and Streatham. So clearly was cinema on. was important, or has always been important in your life. Oh, huge. And, and it was... You know, it's so lovely being asked to, to reminisce about it. And one of the habits I picked up from my brother was he gave me a little notebook. And it was one of those little thin ones, like a memo book that you might write your times table in or as a spelling book. And he said, you're going to write down every film you go and see and you're going to put the date and the title and the certificate and you're going to give it a score out of 10. And I kept it from, you know, very early on from when I was about six or seven. Um, and I still have it somewhere in a box. Oh, cool. Um, but I kept it going for a really long time. And it, mm. it's funny, isn't it? That whole kind of list making thing that a yeah. lot of film, people who love film, yeah. film have. And also there was a period of about six months when my mother took me out of school to India when I was about five. And it was a really life changing experience because I basically lived like an Indian, which considering I was born and raised in Britain was quite an unusual thing to have. And so she would take me to Bollywood cinema houses and um, so I had the whole experience there of where you've been a huge crowd and people get up and shout the screen and are really engaged and I would do that and shout in Hindi at the action you know no you're a bad man but yeah this is an stuff. experience uh, I've I've never had coming from uh, you know we're deep deep in Daily Mail Brexit voting you know Tory heartland here so this is not something that I've had any experience of I'm absolutely fascinated by it how it's almost like a, it seems like it's audience participation. It would, in yeah, Bollywood. and also you would then, you get up and leave, depending on the kind of film it is, the moment the action is over. So I had an older cousin who was, was probably about sort of four or five years older than me, and um, he took me to see a Bruce Lee film in an Indian cinema house in about, it must have been late 70s. I have no idea which one it is. It's not Enter the Dragon. It's not his first, I know that. Right. Um, and it was incredibly I don't know what he was doing taking oh, me. I was about lots of... nine or ten. But the interesting thing is, I think it's one where Bruce Lee goes to help this family whose restaurant business is threatened by Fist gangsters. Of Fury or one of those. Yeah, yeah and at the end, after the final fight and everything, there's a kind of goodbye scene between him and the girl at a graveyard, possibly of her father. And the moment that scene started, everyone in the cinema just got up and started walking out. Like, they weren't going to wait for the end of the, the resolution of the plot because the action sequences is what they come for. And again, that was quite a seminal moment for me because, of course, my instinct was I want to see the whole film mm. to the end. Mm. But in India, all these guys would want to do that. Um, so, yeah, it was always weird seeing Western films. Or, I mean, that wasn't a Western film. That would have been a Hong Kong film, wouldn't it? But yes. seeing non-Indian films through the filter of an Indian audience and the artwork that they would do. So the Dirty Harry poster was up outside, but it was an Indian artist's impression. Yes, yes, they know. were. And huge as well. They used to do these huge artworks, yeah, didn't they? On the side I mean, of buildings and things like that. So Western cinema was shown in those cin- in, in those cinemas. I mean, Bollywood is technically, I think, the biggest film industry in the world, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they would still show Western films. I think, I mean, I don't know how, I haven't been to India for a few years now, and they have multiplexes and things in middle-class neighbourhoods. But back in the 70s when I went, India was still quite a neo-socialist country. It had these big old cinema houses. I think some might have specialised in showing Western films or just showing them in the mix. Right. Um, but the whole tone and the mood of cinemas was different. They were just big movie houses, and it felt like there was a lot less class division. You didn't have, as I say, right. the modern mall-based multiplex, which I think you have now in some of these kind of fancy new um, sort of mini cities they've they've um, built up so i kind of had a really democratic sense of what cinema going was like queuing up for the tickets and all that stuff yeah the only experience we've ever had here really of that was uh, in the early 70s um during the ugandan refugee crisis we had uh, um 
a lot of these poor people to start um, up at Mearsfield Camp. And um, so on a Sunday morning, we bought a, uh, there was a Bollywood film came in to show them all. And the projectionist couldn't make head nor tail of it. It just, it just. Do you remember what the, it was? No, title? I don't. I was very young. I mean, when was that? Seventy two ish, seventy three ish. Well, see, what's interesting about this period, and you know, Indians were early adopters of videos, partly so that they could, um, yes. the video players, so they could watch all these things. Um, but I remember talking to Aaron Dutty Roy about um, Bollywood cinema in the seventies, and the heroes and the heroines were working class. So the film that I remember being taken to see at the cinema on Tooting High Road, which is which became the Bank of Baroda, um, which I think had become a specialist Bollywood screening house, certainly in the evenings, was possibly a film called Cooley, in which Amitabh Bachchan, who is still the biggest name in Bollywood, would be playing a working class porter. And it was all about, you know, the unions versus, you know, the kind of callous capitalist managers. Whereas over the years, Bollywood now is all about rich middle class Indians who are studying in Canada or it's the US or London. Yeah. And it's all aspirational. Mm. And so I'm quite interested that, you know, my association with Bollywood is with those working class heroes. Yeah, I wonder what it was. But there's literally 20 reels of film turned up. This is, I mean, this story was, was recounted for years afterwards. There's 20 reels of 35mm film arrived with no indication of what was real. Three or four or five. Oh, I hope they played them in the right and, order. Well, apparently we'd, we're not sure we did, but nobody cared. It seemed, uh, uh, you know, but quite, I'd, I'd, I wish I'd been old enough to, to have actually sat through the film, but I was uh, quite young at the time. The, um, I know in Bradford, you know, what used to be the Museum of Film and Photography, which is now the National Science and Media Museum, um, they've done some really interesting work kind of cataloguing the the films that were shown there and how there was this whole new circuit that opened up of people mm. bringing and projecting Bollywood films. Yeah, for uh, and they're now routinely there. top ten box office in the UK. Yeah, which is great. And so, what what age were you when you saw these films in India? Then, well, the films I saw in India, I saw a few when I was about five, like right, Guy Gordy. So but quite young. the films like Wizard of Oz and yeah. Tom Thumb, I, I mean, I'm guessing I was about four, and that was well, all here in the UK, which is, as I say, I only spent six months living in India, otherwise I was very much yeah. growing up here. And the other film I have an early memory of is Mary Poppins, which would again have been about 74, 75. And the thing about this, this was definitely the Wimbledon Odeon, was for many, many years, you know, you just turned up and oh, walked in, yeah. you saw what was on and just went in. Mm. And it was all continuous and this was considered normal. And we walked into Mary Poppins quite near the end when all the chimney sweeps are dancing away down Cherry Tree Lane. And one, it's a really quite dark and sinister image because they kind of look like, you know, witches or warlocks. So that freaked me out. But also, you know, we sat through the whole film. I don't know what, um, you know, what, what might have been the support or anything. Well, there wouldn't have been with Mary Poppins. It's too long. There wouldn't have because it was so long. Good. <laughs> so, so we got through it again. And, and I remember we got to that same point in the film. Our mother said, all right, well, you've seen the whole film now, so we can get up and go yep. home. And this is, you know, the, the young <laughs> cineast in me went, but I haven't seen it all the way through in order yet. Yeah. And I think I managed to convince my mother to stay until the end of the whole film. I mean, it was maybe another 20 minutes. Yeah, it's quite close but... to the end at that point. But it was a really big moment where I realised I didn't want to get up and leave just because I'd technically mm. seen the film's duration. Yeah. Well, continuous was the way it was done. And I think it, it goes back to, um, I mean, cinemas were big and you had anything from, you know, I mean, in our little cinema, we had about 500 seats at that uh, in before, you know, it all got carved up. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you'd go shopping in town or whatever, and then you'd mm -hmm. spend an hour, two hours in the cinema, you know, and it was, it was like a revolving door. And of course, I mean, presumably you've sort of seen old, old images of you know two in the one and nines because you would literally queue outside and wait for two people to come out so that you if could go small, in yeah. and, and well, all those films set in the war you had that real sense of people just going into the cinema for some escapism yeah and i, I mean, think it, you can yeah. compare it to tv culture where the idea you just turn the tv on see what's on spend some time in front of it mm. and then leave mm. um so but i'm fascinated that that approach to cinema came first because it's not how we expect to see films now. No, no, it was perfectly acceptable. And in, in actual fact, there was quite a lot of resistance to removing that from cinema or to taking that away from cinemas. And the first, I mean, 
the big roadshow films, you know, the Ben Hur's and the Spartacus mm. and the, that kind of thing, they were they were always advertised as separate performances. You couldn't go in in the middle of those because they they were they were often uh, higher um, admission price. Yeah, and they had the interval and everything. An interval and all that kind of. So actually, Mary Poppins had an interval, though. To be fair, why um, is the interval in Mary Poppins? Just remind me. The interval is uh, after she sings "Go to Sleep." Or don't go to sleep, or whatever she's singing okay. after the, you know, um, cartoon sequence. You know, oh yes, uh, view hello, and uh, <laughs> and she sings them. She sings them a lullaby, doesn't she? And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Just, sleep. it's just that's the only film I didn't know where the interval yeah, was. Yeah, and it, it opens up on the old boy on the roof doing the. Yeah. Uh, yes, um, and uh, so the first film where it was stipulated we must do separate performances every single day of every single performance was Jaws in 1975, as late as that. Um, Universal Institute, because they knew it was such a big hit that they wanted to maximise the... And my, my, my dad always used to tell the story about um, how infuriated he was when we were showing My Fair Lady, although that was a, an interval film we were three years late with it at the time that's how how the, how the business ran and um so we turned people away for the what they call the lcp the last complete performance and um 20 minutes in 30 people would get up and walk out because that's where they'd come in on the previous performance it used to drive him absolutely nuts so he was uh, quite keen to get rid of uh, separate performances but that's yes it's interesting you picked up on that so early you know, yeah. That, that was, yeah, 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 continuous. And I don't know when they finally stopped it, so I'm well, not aware of it as a real thing. Uh, um, but obviously those films you mentioned, I mean, I remember going to see Jaws. I remember those event films of the 70s. Um, Star Wars was definitely one of those. Oh, where it no, felt continuous like, was, was, was not allowed on Star Wars yeah. in 1977. Although we didn't play it until October 1978. But, uh, no, uh, summer 78, because my dad wouldn't play a film for four weeks and pay 80% for it when it came out on Boxing Day 1977 because in those days we had to wait such a long time for films from America it was a much much yeah. longer gap than we have now I think now. people forget that mm. you know and we were prepared to it we didn't have much else to do just also queuing up outside the cinema where they would put up a little um, like a, almost like a portable bus stop yeah. and you would queue there queue for here. different screens mm. and you know you'd turn up not necessarily knowing when the next performance was going to no. be open for you and can you imagine making people wait outside now <laughs> I know. They'd be outraged because you mentioned about um, queuing to see Greece in 1978, round the block. That we've got a great yeah. picture actually of that of the queues for Greece. Extraordinary. It's funny. Book. I mean, that was a film that was marketed so successfully um, at at teenagers. And the thing about it was the Odeon and the ABC were right opposite each other at the end of Wimbledon mm -hmm. Broadway, mm -hmm. and. Um, you could tell, you know, the Odeon was quite miffed they didn't get Greece. I don't know how the distribution works. Because the Odeon was a, a big, there's one a of long the, story why that is. Yeah. Uh, well, it was, it was the big screen and they had divided it into three. So the giant screen was still giant, but they had turned the stalls into to screens two and three. Mm. So I don't know what they were showing, but everyone was queuing outside the single screen ABC. And it was a Sunday. So it was the day before school. And my, my dad was the one who would often take us to see the kind of big blockbusters that required a queue. And I remember we were in the queue and people I was at school with had just come out of the previous screening. And I could tell their parents were a bit surprised that my dad was taking us in to see the evening screening. You know, the one that started at seven or something. Yeah. Because the next day was a school day. Yeah, yeah. And we barely got in. And I remember that, you know, it was the day you had that proper manager with his bow tie and everything. And he, he I remember him saying, I can do you three. And me and my sister were sat together quite high up in the circle and my dad was sat separately but you know that thing where you fit people into individual seats singles as we call them in the trade singles yeah <laughs> and the one thing when i when i lived in los angeles i used to do a lot of you know cinema events and go and see a lot of films i was fascinated by the weird line that americans have where they don't like assigned seating which no, actually britain took to very well when it came in mm. um and they hate it on principle, like they object to it morally. And so I remember going to see, you know, Evita with Madonna. And it was on in the Cinerama Dome oh, on, yeah. and it opened on Boxing Day. And I went to see it because I knew I'd be having to do an interview about it on the radio that night. And you had to get this sort of so early. You might as well have been in the 1950s queuing again. Mm. Um, and then people would get run in and they would, you know, hog all these seats and spread their coats. And I just thought for a country that, you know, is usually quite advanced in technology and making life easier... 
it was bizarrely primitive the way that they ran the cinema culture and then the whole thing about not having cinema adverts that were real just you'd have very cheap slides yeah they didn't have adverts for a long 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 time but it was because they had they had so many terrible adverts on their TVs on all the, the time. TV, the idea was yeah. they wouldn't stand them in cinema. Whereas actually, I think a lot of us still, in a way, enjoy proper cinema ads because they're often rather well made. Well, that's interesting. In yeah, cinema ads. That's uh, that's a thing. Actually, I've not spoken to anyone about, but that must be a memory as well, surely, of cinema. And some of them adverts. went on too long. Like you remember the one for that brand of gin, and it was Uranti Impeccum. You know, and oh it was, no, that uh, was Bacardi. Bacardi rum. That was so Bacardi. That, I mean, I love that woman, and I love seeing the beach. But I'm like, how many years did that ad run for? Auntie you Beryl. Your Auntie Beryl. Yeah, the, the dog, dog and, and duck, duck down, down the street. street. <laughs> <laughs> Catching the last bus home. That's right. If you're drinking Bacardi. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I did when, like the Southern Comfort ones, especially uh, when I worked out that the girl in it had been in Grange Hill. Oh really. Yeah. Was that the one with the um, the the storm? Who was you're passed. mixing it with? The kind yeah. of racially charged one. Yes. Where the white guy is picking up the girlfriend and she's black. Oh, I don't remember truck. that one. There's the one, the one, the Southern Louisiana. Comfort. The Southern Comfort one I remember is the you know uh, where the you know the hurricane has passed, but oh, it yeah. is still raining. <laughs> that one was later. Was it? Yeah. But they were always the last ad. Southern Comfort gin and the Gordon's gin were always the last ad in the reel. Um, but of course, the local ads were things that people remember with some fondness. You know, they're really cheesy. One dry cleaners of Whitney. Yeah. <laughs> that, this is from when I was at university. Um, it was in Oxford. And so there was the Crusader popcorn. Hey, right. Crusader, have uh-huh. you any nuts? Right. <laughs> there was a song. I don't, we, we never showed those uh, sales ads. They were called sales ads. It was all very arcane, this, but it's, it's, um, yeah, so they came separately and were free, and you spliced them in if you were selling stuff in the foyer. But right. we never had those kind of facilities. And my old man was a bit funny about popcorn. I mean, how you be funny about popcorn in a cinema? It's I don't a mess know. to clean up. Well, it sticks to the chairs and yeah, the, you know, and all that nice. kind of stuff. But um, but the local adverts for you know either the local curry house or the local dry cleaners <laughs> or the local you know where they spliced the end, so you'd have that jump. Where it'd say, you know, Reg, what do you want most when we're married? A whacking great telly like your dad's got. <laughs> and then there'd be a join and the voice would change completely. Rented from us, of course. <laughs> which, anyway, I could do that, do that, do those old ads all day, which is no good for anybody. But that's all part of the experience, isn't it? Which yeah. um, I think uh, that's something that we don't do anymore in cinema, really, do we? It's like the trailers. People love the trailers. You know, people don't like it. If you don't show trailers, they get a little bit upset. Even though we're kind of saturated, aren't we now, in, in, in images selling us films, trailers are still quite important in cinema. Well, the other thing I'd say is quite important about the cinema experience was when you would come down from seeing a big film in the Odeon, you, you had to walk down flights and flights and flights of stairs to get to the bottom. And in those tiny letters, they would always have put up on a notice before you walked out the mm-hmm. exit doors what was coming next. Mm. But you didn't quite know which week because obviously there seemed to be this flexibility about how long they would hold stuff for. I don't know yeah. how much choice they had, but you, you would have this idea of what was coming. And, um, and then also when they did start to have posters and some kinds of displays, in the foyers there's films that i've never seen right but i have studied the foyer displays and i remember carry on england because i used to love the old carry-ons that were being shown on tv by that was then. one of the carry last on ones england. Carry on england. Well, yeah it was i think one of the very last ones and you could just tell it looked weird not right no it wasn't right because they had people like windsor davis in it who weren't proper carry-on people were they and the thing is, we sort of we seem to be accelerating away from carry-ons. The, for, for here in Uckfield, they were a mainstay. We were always playing carry-on movies because they always did really well. Carry-on camping was enormous, absolutely enormous. But, in so uh, many ways. But it was, <laughs> yes. Oh no. But um, so that was, yeah, something we always did. That 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 that's very much part of my childhood was um, uh, carry-ons and things like that. But you went as a family to the cinema then, by the sound of it. A lot of the time, my mother would take us, um, me, my elder brother and my younger sister, and especially during the school holidays and things. Um, my father was one of those kind of self-made businessmen who worked really long hours. But the big the big things that he would take us to was like Greece. He would be the one who'd take us mm-hmm. to see that. And he was the one who would take us to see the James Bonds. It's a real dad's right. 
kids thing. So I remember my my dad took my elder brother to see Live and Let Die in 74. And they came back with, you know, those big glossy programs you could buy with lots of photos. Mm-hmm. And they brought it back. And I, again, it's sort of this film that I didn't see for years, uh, uh, you know, later. And the images in it were so disturbing and twisted and sexual and weird racial, you know, tones to them and everything mm. and I, I was just freaked out and there was also I think there's the scene near the end where he cuts James Bond's hand and they're tied to that tied cage to the he's going to lower them into the shark thing the... before he blows <laughs> him up and it was just seeing oh my god James with this giant <laughs> cut yeah. dodger as you called him dodge oh, dodge we, we always call him um, dodger Oh, but really? it was The Spy Who Loved Me was the one that my dad took me to see. Yeah. And I, I mean, that was 77. So I would have been um, about nine. And it was a huge thing that I was now considered old enough to be taken to see my first to James see Bond. see the Bond film. And I remember being up in the circle. Now, for some reason, I think that we saw it in the Odeon Marble Arch. But from what I've read, it was on in the Odeon Leicester Square. And I it, know we went to see it in the West End. Oh, it would have been uh, uh, both. Probably. It would have been both. And I think we were in Odeon Marble Arch because I just yeah. remember how huge it was. And, oh, I've, yeah, that was and I miss that cinema a lot. I remember going to see Spartacus there on re-release many years later. Yeah, the And they had a 17 mil. mil season there in the early 90s with yeah. the white stuff and all kinds of things. Yeah, my two favourite 17 mil experiences are um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia in 88 at the Odeon yes. Marble Arch when Robert Harris had restored it. Um and then gave it back to David, which I thought was a really brave thing to do. He gave he gave David Lean the film back and said, "Here you go. Here's the film that that was butchered in 1962." And um, Lean went, "Oh!" And he wanted another go at it, which I thought was quite extraordinary. But the uh, and he oversaw the new screen that went in for that presentation, and it was it was remarkable. Oh, I just loved the in you know, the foyer and everything yeah. about the design of those places. And I remember the manager of the Odeon Marble Arch a few years before it shut because. Um, by this stage, I was living very close to um, to it in the early 90s. And it was one of the world's, one of the first national cinema days. And they were showing the smallest show on earth oh, okay, in the Odeon yeah. Marble Arch. So the kind of irony of showing that about yeah. a flea pit in this the giant biggest screen. screen in Europe, yeah. showing the smallest show on earth. Um, and I just remember the manager coming out and introducing it. And I just I have these really lovely memories of you know, when you, you saw the manager of these individual cinemas who really cared about their venue and took care of it and they had a relationship with their staff um all that's gone i talked to the local people who work in you know my local multiplex and they're all university students being treated terribly yes well the multiplex is a sort of uh, an interesting thing because it kind of saved the industry in many ways it saved the cinema industry in many ways but they're they've um you know they need to up their game slightly in terms of well, the quality and the cheapest. presentation you know, how, how few stuff they can get away with, mm. how cheap mm. um, the furnishings and the decor they can get away with and how much, you know, junk they can sell at you. And so, I mean, I'm glad that I got NFT membership as soon as I could when I was about 21 and I moved back to London. And I've got into the habit of taking my own children very young. So they saw things like the original Alexander Corder Jungle Book and wow. Baghdad there, um, you know, and... You know, the, the the NFT one screen is still pretty decent size. Yeah, um, they're refurbing it at the moment. Be interesting to see how they get on with that new sound and all sorts in there. Oh, that'd be interesting. Mm. Um, but that's great. I mean, to have that facility and to take the kids to see those films at a cinema is, uh, you know, just brilliant for them. Um, yeah, you know, things like Vertigo, which I'd never seen in the cinema before, and how did you they find had no. <laughs> they they really enjoyed it. They were quite. I mean, you know, it's a good film to take kids to see as an as a first. Um, Hitchcock because the misogyny is isn't the main thing you notice you're just you're 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 weirded out by it and it's so exquisite to look at and it just gets you thinking about the whole artifice of cinema without even realizing you're doing it my daughter and I sat through it together the first time she'd seen it and she said vertigo per vertigo more like (laughs) which I thought was an interesting take on it from a from a from a young person I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, it's obviously unassailable, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they haven't seen. Oh God, what did I go and see? That awful late one he did. Oh, Frenzy. Frenzy. That's so ghastly. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And there's a um, it, it to, to 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 add to it uh, to make it even more disturbing. Try and find the documentary. I think it was a film night documentary or um, Tony Bilbo or one of those people. Mm-hmm on the set of uh, Frenzy and they've got footage of him directing the scene 
when the poor woman gets strangled with the necktie. Oh yeah, the first victim you see. It's it's. I mean, he's sitting in his sort of director's chair, this close to the it's action. Horrible. And get now you've got to turn them. It's like de- late Dennis Potter, you know. <laughs> it's it's, it's really just strange. Really it's really nasty. quite unpleasant. It really is. Well, so you would have seen the Spy Love Me at the Odeon Marble Arch. Marble Arch. Fantastic. I mean, that's yeah. that. You know, we um, we didn't play it until yeah September nineteen seventy seven. Um, but they yeah always took huge money. So so they, these are quite for, you know these are important times. Then aren't we? Spy Love Me, Greece seventy seven seventy eight. Yeah. And then um, so we talked about the Bollywood uh thing, and I'm fascinated about the little European art cinema. Your experience in Europe? Yeah. So um. When I was in my early 20s, this would have been, I mean, I turned 20 in 1988. Um, and in the early 90s, I was living in London working for the BBC and I would travel. And I remember going for a week in Paris on my own and I would buy a copy of Periscope, the mm-hmm. weekly timeout equivalent. And I would just go through it looking at all the um, sort of retro cinema house listings. And they had this particular fascination there. I mean, they have with cinema in general, but the reverence they showed to American Hollywood cinema Mm. fascinated me. And there were all these tiny screens, a lot of them on the left bank. Um, And I would often go and see films in the afternoon when it was always raining that week. I was in Paris. It was April, I think. Um, Uh, And I would see like Carmen Miranda films and um, you'd tip a franc to the usher and all that stuff. And the thing that I really remember was I went to see an evening screening of Man's Favourite Sport, the Howard Hawks film with Rock Hudson and Paula Prentice. You know, kind of sex comedy. You were on Saturday. me, that was. Yeah. Sorry? You rather than me? I, I do enjoy no, it. No, no, no. I said new one on me. I'd never heard of that picture. Oh, it's worth seeing. It's early 60s. And it's um, it's it's about fishing in every sense. Yeah. Um, and it's all set in this holiday camp. But it's nothing like Karen Camping. <laughs> Sorry, I'm making it worse. Anyway, we're going to see it. It's really funny. But it's a Saturday night screening and the, the cinema is packed with all these Parisian professional couples who've come out to see this film. And the the, the screening started and the sound, something was wrong with the sound. So the opening credit sequence, which is just titles, you know, there's no imagery particularly, was mute. And they fixed it before the film started. But everyone had already started booing and hissing. And once the sound came up, the titles are still running, by the way. People were going, au début, au début. And they wanted the projectors to turn it back to the very first frame so they could listen to the opening title music and watch wow. the opening credits properly. Yeah. And I thought, that is respect for someone. <laughs> so, but this is, I mean, that's Paris is where I saw um, the Blue Angel. I saw a Greta Garbo film called Two-Faced Woman. I mean, oh. you know, it was kind of, I had this association with Paris and catching up on all these amazing old Hollywood uh, films mm. um, and kind of classic films of the 1930s. And then in nine, in the 90s, a bit later, I, I travelled to Berlin on my own. I went around Germany on my own in 94. Having missed the wall coming down, I just drove around East and West Germany on my own in a hire car, the most amazing time. And I saw weird things, like I saw... Brand new Hollywood films in these old East German cinema houses that yeah. had been built in the 1950s, where I'd be like one of three people in the audience on wooden fold-down chairs. So I saw the Nick Nolte, Julia Roberts film, um, Ooh, uh, Nothing But Trouble, where she's an undercover reporter. And of course, I saw it dubbed into German, so I never quite worked out what was going on, although my German was pretty good. I don't think anyone um, did if they saw it in English, to be honest. But yeah. <laughs> but but and then when I went back to work in Germany for a year in 98... There are all these amazing little cinema club houses that are all around mm. um, Berlin. And some of them are in old converted factories where, honestly, you're walking through derelict industrial sites and there'll be little signs on the wall painted to direct you up to the, yeah. you know, the Kino Im Fabrique. That was the one. Or literally cinema in the factory. You know, a bookshop with a cinema behind it. And crucially, a yeah. really cool bar where people right. would buy beer. And this wasn't something you could do in Britain at the time. Right. So, you know, people would go in with their drinks. There'd be old, decrepit sofas. They had real atmosphere. I saw all the Jim Jarmusch movies only abroad. I saw them in Berlin. And later on, my husband and I, we went on a mini break to Prague, um, very early 2000s. And again, I just did the same thing. I just dug out the listings and we went and saw Mystery Train in this wow. old arcade, this beautiful old cinema in Prague um, with, unfortunately, it was in English with subtitles, but of course, there's a whole section in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> so I hadn't planned on that. So there's a, there's a load of amazing films I've seen where I've not quite worked out everything because I was negotiating another language like Three Colours Blue 
with mm. um, in French with German subtitles. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, theoretically, uh, 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 directors often say, "Well, you should be able to turn the sound down and still be able to understand what's going on because it's such a visual medium." I'm not sure that's entirely true. No, but, not when she's explaining this. No, thing that of course, yeah, uh, yeah, and um, uh, Kozlovsky, yeah. I think you could probably without the dialogue would be it would always be tricky, but. Um, um, what's what's coming across actually here, and what's really interesting is the fact that um, cr- the environment you see a film in is is actually quite crucial in many ways. And this is and, and at the risk of, uh, of, of, of sounding like a broken record, this is what streaming can't do. This is oh, what yeah. your television can't do. And all of these memories are not just about the film; they're about the environment you saw them in, which must have added to the experience so immeasurably. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, I hadn't thought about it till just now, but if you'd asked me, you know, a fantasy of mine, a fantasy of mine had always been to buy one of the old cinema houses that I saw and run it, you know, mm. and not care and be rich enough that it didn't match if it was full or not. Um, and then I found myself thinking practically and thinking, oh, but what happens if you get a load of really badly behaved people in, you know, who spoil it for everyone else? And then I thought... <laughs> no, but the thing is, though, and you sort of... Uh, alighted on it a bit earlier the multiplex doesn't engender that kind of respect for the film you know we're very hot on noise we're hot on you know mi- we don't get a lot of misbehaving around here everyone <laughs> it's not that kind of environment but i know. do think there's a cultural thing i mean i do may- maybe it comes naturally if you're in an environment which looks like it's treating you as mm. a valued customer and the whole experience is something but I have this big bugbear, which is parents taking their children too young to the cinema. So taking mm. toddlers and running around. And, well, particularly in America, you know, it's really bad. And and it, you know, and I made a big thing about I didn't take my children to the cinema till they were four and they were old enough to sit still and concentrate and behave. And I really found that a frustration about going to see children's films that I'd often end up wanting to take my kids later in the day when parents wouldn't be taking their toddlers. And I remember once going to see, you know, I used to go to the West End a lot just to see what was on, especially in the daytime, on my days off from shifts, because I did a lot of overnight shifts in, on the Today programme and on you know, TV mm-hmm. news and stuff. And I would go and see films that often, you know, were quite grown up, and there'd be parents bringing in prams. And I remember there's quite small cinema conversions where the screen touches the ground. And I remember there was this big sex scene going on on screen, and this toddler had just walked up to the screen and was leaning against it, so the projection was kind of slightly over. No. And I just thought, I wonder if this toddler's going to have really weird memories later of just something in their subconscious that they sh- you know yeah they shouldn't it, quite have been there for in the u.s uh you can take children and pretty much see anything other than an r-rated film and i've had some horrible experiences in la when yeah buggies come in you know um i went to a screening of um terence malick's film the lost world with children running around, not quite the same thing, is it? I don't understand that. I really don't. But well, they then try and police it. So the last time I went to the States, about two or three years ago, there was a new chain that had opened up. I can't remember what it was called. And they made a big thing about the fact that they gave you assigned seating. Mm-hmm. You could take a glass of wine in with you. And they had a, a, They said that they enforced a kind of strict no talking policy. And, that, you know, and it was adults only for, you know, it was sort of if it was um, an evening screening, you could bring children in. Um, so the whole idea was it was more like a kind of proper theatrical experience. But they had to market themselves as that. And it sort of worked, although ironically, the film my daughter and I went to see, there was Bad Moms, which is all about adult <laughs> women behaving incredibly <laughs> badly. Um, but you could tell it was it was an exciting novelty to American adults to be able to carry a glass of wine in. And, and in technically, you know, your phone had to be switched off. That was the thing. These were all the things that they said that was special about this cinema chain mm. was you turned your phone off. There was no talking. You could take a glass of wine in. Um, I'm trying to think who it is. Probably the landmark, was it? I think it might have been. The landmark on Pico. That's yeah, the, we went to of... the one on, we were staying in Manhattan Beach. Um, oh, so right. it was one near there. It's multiplex near there. They do have some nice theatres there. The Arclight was always my favourite, but that's getting a bit, a bit, um, worn now which has got so the, the cinerama dome attached to it yeah well i once made a little thing for you know the f- program from our own correspondent mm-hmm. i did a from from our own correspondent about cinema houses in los angeles when i was the bbc's correspondent there and there were still some amazing old cinemas from the 50s and 60s which hadn't been either so disney had started buying up some like el capitan and had yeah. done them up and mm-hmm. opened them that was beautiful i went to see um toy story there but there was one on wilshire boulevard and it was run by this guy with his friends and his family 
family. Um, and it had turned into a sex cinema and then he'd bought it and he'd actually restored a proper silver screen and he programmed it with really interesting stuff like William Holden films because he loved William Holden. And I started going to see things there regularly and I got chatting to him and I'd, I made this whole mini documentary about him and the old cinema houses of LA. But in the end, sadly, a few years later, it got bought by one of those um, big church churches and turned a lot into of them a kind have, of... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same in um, London. Mm. But they survived well into the 90s. And, I'm, I th and they obviously are independent still there. That website, cinemartreasures.org. Yeah, that's it's quite going. fun. Yeah. <laughs> All sorts but, of um, things on there. But I think the, the cinema in, in Westwood is still with us, isn't it? The one at the end of... Um, there are some really nice ones. And yeah. I lived in Silver Lake, which had some of the really beautiful little... Um, I think they were kind of 20s or 30s. It wasn't quite Art Deco. It was something more... And it wasn't quite Spanish Mission. It was this particular style that you get a lot in LA. And I remember when they started restoring all the old Star Wars films and I went to see the, the restoration of episode four. And what was really charming, because it was LA, was you could tell there were loads of people who'd worked on the original Star Wars and had come with their children and grandchildren, because this was, you know, 20 years later, to see it restored. And so... When the credits came up, there were all these little ripples of applause when someone's <laughs> name appeared. Yeah, you do get that in LA quite often, don't you? Yeah, being so that sense of town. being an industry town was yeah, really nice. Yeah, I'm also fascinated reading on your uh, website about uh, your love of westerns. Oh, so I have a really good story about westerns. Um, I mean, my brother used to watch them a lot on video. He used to take them off TV and he and friends would sit and watch them. And they love spaghetti westerns, which I have to say are not really my favourite. I like the golden era of westerns from the 30s to the 50s. But when I went to San Francisco on a holiday just to visit one of my friends, there's that amazing old cinema in um, the Castro district. Um, it's really famous. It's got a kind of giant chandelier and it's, I can't remember what it's called. I think it might even call the Castro Theatre. And it was showing Once Upon a Time in the West, which I'd never seen. And they were showing it at 17 mil and it's this massive screen. And I, and I, and it wasn't that full, it was a daytime screening. And this old guy came over to me and it was like being in a Western where he said, you know, where are you from, lady? And I, and I said, I was from London and, and I said I'd never seen the film before. And he went, I'm so jealous. And I love the <laughs> idea that I was going to see it for the first time with pure oh. eyes in this perfect setting. I, I'm so, with um, him on that. You know, so that, I like that. I, I love the idea that, you, you know, like you get a... Um, uh, what's it? Um, uh, you know, for Men in Black, the flashy thing, so that you could uh, see. You know, I could see the Jungle Book for the first time, or, or you know, all these Jaws for the first time, or um, you know, that would be fantastic. There's and one I should mention, which is the one that Quentin Tarantino's bought. So when I first went to LA, um, there's a cinema called the New Beverly, which is yes, he, um, he runs now, doesn't he? Which he now mm. runs, and it was just—it's a tiny little cinema. Mm. Um, a bit of a flea pit but it always did these really quirky double bills so they would do you know beyond the value of the dolls with something and i went to see a lot of weird trashy 60s and 70s films there um and there was a cafe nearby called the insomnia cafe that was open mm -hmm. till three or four a.m and this being 95 it was quite novel to me that whole open all night coffee shops and things um and then and but yeah and i made friends and things through that cinema so when he took over i just saw this huge row erupt about its ownership and i think that's the only thing which i've never quite got to the bottom of it no but people can get quite possessive of what they think is their cinema and oh, what it should look like and feel sense like of ownership is it, it's absolutely a thing and this is what we have with our audience a tremendous sense of ownership of their local cinema which is you know quite heartwarming at a time like this my question there actually is because a lot of my whilst I was very lucky growing up I saw a lot of particularly through the 70s I'm a teeny bit older than you I'm 58 and um so I was lucky 70s American cinema is my you know my thing so you're the same age as my brother so right. yes, yeah you've got exactly <laughs> the same taste I think so you know I I'm a massive fan of Harold and Maud and Five Easy Pieces and that kind of flowering of American cinema which is being increasingly well covered I think over the last few years but um and uh so whilst I was very lucky I saw Taxi Driver when it was released I saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when it was released I was just had to sneak in to be honest but you know because your dad owns the cinema it's slightly easier um but my education of older films comes from television so television is important though isn't it in in that regard and I think 
we we're not done a great service at the moment with old films being available on television you know sun, i used to sit and watch the sunday afternoon matinee with my mum you know mildred pierce and and well that's i would argue that's now changing um yeah. because i know there was an issue of particularly black and white films not getting programmed but two things one the success of talking pictures tv which mm. i if you ask me which tv channel i turn on and i randomly watch more of than anything else it is that channel right and they even you know they they use archive footage of cinemas and everything oh, to kind of give all the you old feel. snipes yeah but also since the, the the start of the pandemic um in march 2020 you'll notice that the bbc put a load of old archaeo films that yes, they obviously they had the rights to on the iplayer and they are showing more black and white films they're scheduling them on sunday afternoons you know close encamp close encounter brief encounter <laughs> brief encounters brief yeah, encounters of the third alien. brief <laughs> encounters gets of in the ship. third kind i say are you going back to mars yes oh you fool oh, well they well they pull out the willows on mars <laughs> that's really funny but um yes maybe that's true i mean my poor wife has to sit through some of these i put spanish main on a few weeks ago she didn't enjoy that at all i i in fact, I remember seeing that in the cinema because my dad would book cheap double bills for Saturday afternoons and you could pick them out of a book and they were a fiver each. Nice. And, you know, you had uh, Starlick's Invasion Earth. With, oh, I love that film. Yeah, <laughs> with the Great St. Trinian's Train Robbery or something oh, like that. <laughs> great combination. Oh, um, the Daleks films. That was quite a thing to see them in colour. Yeah, well, they, I mean, I've only ever seen them on TV, but mm. every time they've been on, I can remember exactly, you know, whose house I was in and right. the rest of it. Yeah, because they they're so well put together and the quality of the film and the colour saturation. Yeah. And they were um, made by an American company, I believe. Um, yes. And funnily enough, I've just got my issue of um, Doctor Who magazine has got these specials they're doing and they've got a 1965 special oh, issue, cool. which has just come out. And there's a whole feature in it on the film. Mm. And the fact that it was american made is why they they wanted peter cushing was their first choice they didn't want this unknown brit um William and it, it doesn't fit the i mean uh, the canon at all does it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't even refer to the fact that he's a time lord at all well they actually imply his name is who oh they? yeah they do but he never mentions you know there's nothing about doctor who in it other than he's Doctor Who in a TARDIS. That's about the yeah. only... <laughs> which, uh, oh, I saw those film. endlessly, yeah. And Dalek's Invasion Earth, actually, I think was the... I, I actually was slightly preferred that one. than. Yeah, no, that is... Um, I mean, that's basically a French resistance movie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was like the bit where Bernard Cribbins is getting the food out of the... He's trying to work out how to get the food out of the, the, the automatic <laughs> device. But... Um, Yes. So uh, another film, you, another double bill you mentioned was the two Planet of the Apes films, which is oh, kind of fascinating. Oh, so, so glad you brought that up. So this was one of those double bills that was just on in the Wimbledon Odeon. It would have been the, the Easter or the summer holidays. And my mother took me and my siblings to the cinema. I can't believe that we took my younger sister, but I think we did. And, we, and I remember we were at the cinema. It was, the foyer was empty. Obviously, all the screenings were underway. And there was this big choice. And I'm not saying it was like Sophie's choice, but I definitely knew what I wanted. And it was not the Planet of the Apes double bill. And my brother said, oh, no, 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 it's I don't know. And I don't know how he conned my mother, how she thought this was suitable. So we walked in on, and the double bill was Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which I think it's about 75 that was or the 76. Last one, wasn't it? It's the last yeah. one. Mm. With Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is mm. 60... The second one, that would be about 68, nine, 69. 68 yeah, or yeah. 69, yeah. And and we walked in quite near the end of battle, which is, you know, this tanks and... It's tanks. not a great film. It's not that great, but... Um, and again, we sat through it all until we got back to the same point. But Beneath the Planet of the Apes, it's one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's incredibly creepy, this whole idea of nuclear annihilation and what endures and worshipping the bomb, which in 19... I mean, it must have been not long after Battle was out. I reckon it would have been something like 76. I reckon there was the new film and then they pegged a double bill with it. So I was living the Cold War nightmare and it yeah. was made real on a screen for me. Yeah. And very Doctor Strangelove at the end, you know, the world is annihilated. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not great. It's just so bleak. Um, but of course, because it's so beautifully made and it has this... You know, you are in a... I mean, it's so much better than sort of like Lord of the Rings because you're in this journey where you're going into this strange, terrifying land. And remember, the, they think they found all these apes crucified upside down and it's a mirage that's been created by the mutants. But you see the imagery first. I mean, it's 
it's it's like you know it's partly like a western and it's partly like um you know kind of a fantasy adventure and it's your darkest nightmare mm. and um they were forced to do it they didn't want to do it you know the the writers and the the, 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 the idea of a sequel to planet of the apes was actually quite tricky for them and they had it's to such be- a good film oh yeah but they had to bend the story you know quite you know james franciscus actually also comes back through time doesn't he Yes. Which, given that the end was a kind of a da-da, the original one, oh, you know, oh, my God, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. Um, uh, so, but it, it worked. No, no, it absolutely worked. And they got sort of steadily worse after that. Yeah, although Escape, again, that's turned up on TV occasionally on sort of, you know, one of the, not, not one of the main channels. But Escape from the Planet of the Apes, you know, is all about celebrity and how... Mm. The media fate you and then they turn against you and they hunt you down mm. and conquest so when i lived in la i used to go and shop at the century city shopping mall which is exactly where they filmed conquest yeah, they did, <laughs> it was yeah. really exciting and <laughs> and again i've actually written columns about you know for wow. magazines about many of these films because they've been such seminal experience in kind of helping me work out my thinking but conquest is about both about slavery but it's also really very much for me about the way police brutality worked against civil uprising. So mm. if you think about, you know, Kent State and, you know, the Democratic Convention in Chicago, that's the imagery that I have yeah. associated with those films. And I think that's what you were supposed to think. I mean, they're incredible looking films. Well, you know, Mohamed Morsi, who was briefly elected president of Egypt after the Arab Spring and then got toppled and the, the military took over again, but he was from the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. So they were in their own way quite worrying for rolling back um, rights and things. But he'd spent all this time living in Los Angeles where he was a graduate um, student and worked. And he had written or done an interview where he explained how he'd watched Planet of the Apes films and they had helped him understand key wow. things about how you rule a nation. And again, I, I wrote a piece about it and I'm not sure he took the right, right lesson, but I think it was sort of about if you control the narrative and you control what's acceptable, then you kind of control a nation. And if you remember at the end of Planet of the Apes, you know, the wise old orangutan sort of warns um, Charlton Heston, you know, don't go there because you won't like what you'll find. And it, you're better off believing the mythology that we've created and not going out of, into the forbidden zone, all that stuff. That's kind the idea that it influenced someone who went on, even if only briefly, to run a whole country. It's yes, the power of cinema. So that I, actually, the, the 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 only other thing I was curious about was your first double A certificate, hopscotch. The, the, the <laughs> reason I bring that. the reason I bring that up is because actually a lot of it was shot around here. Was it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, all those chase sequences. So, yeah. um, I hadn't seen any of those George Seagull, um, Glenda Jackson films, which oh, yeah. they you know they were famous for. Big um, money. But it came out, it was a double A. And I remember one of my friends from school said, oh, you know, I'll go and see this. And I had, and I remember her even saying, oh, you've never been to a double A before. I was yeah. 12. <laughs> um, but I'm an incredible, I still am an incredibly law-abiding kind of person. Okay. So the idea of breaking the law seemed wrong. And as far as I can tell, the only thing about that film that shocked me, and it did shock me, was the amount of effing and blinding. I'd never heard the F word used before, okay. ever. Right. And yeah. and they just kept shouting at each other, and they were being chased by helicopters. No, no, no. George Siegel wasn't in it. Yes, it was, was Walter Matthau. Was it? Yeah, oh. Walter okay. Matthau, Glenda Jackson. Oh, okay, fair enough. They, but they were sort of interchangeable in my. See, I think part of it was seventies leading men and main. I, I mean, I didn't find them remotely good looking. I know that sounds no, very superficial, I'm not sure. but they were all like James Caan. My brother went to see Rollerball and all this like that, and I just thought they're all. They've all got like, terrible hair and, um, you know, they're all kind of big and hairy and mean. And I just didn't like any of them. You didn't like Rollerball? I have seen it. And yes, I sort of did. Again, I saw it too young. I think that's the first double A I saw, actually, Rollerball. Maybe I sneaked into the Curzon Cinema in Eastbourne when I used to go and stay with my nan. Uh, it was either that or Blazing Saddles. I don't know if I saw Rollerball when it was first shown on TV, but I do remember seeing it quite young. And, um hmm. Yeah. I think Blazing Saddles actually might have been my first double I've still not seen Blazing Saddles. What? But I was saying to my kids, I know we are going what? to sit down and watch it together. It feels like the film I need to see now. Oh, Blazing Saddles. Well, <laughs> I think my favourite is High Anxiety. And when we went to San Francisco, I made sure it we just... went and had lunch in that hotel foyer. Uh, yeah, so we I like could just one. watch all the lifts. It was so much fun. But um, So just to sort of wrap up then, really, are you optimistic that we'll survive as cinema? I, I really hope so. I've certainly felt, just judging from my own changing feelings over time, I think people are desperate to get out there and have communal experiences again. And, you know, I always think about 
especially if you're into you really love cinema rather than just wanting to see the latest blockbuster and nothing else there's something about that the, the, the place that curates things for you mm. and you can get a nice coffee or have a drink and you meet friends there and um I mean, one of the things that's on my mind all the time is I'm supposed to be interviewing Mike Hodges for a career retrospective, oh. the director of Get Carter. Yeah, yeah. And it was supposed to have been in May 2020, and then obviously it got put back, and it was supposed to be May this year. And they've decided now to put it back to next year. His birthday is... Um, I don't know if actually his birthday is in May. I think his birthday is later, actually. Mm. Um and so, you know, we were just exchanging emails and he went to be put back another year. And I just, you know, it frustrates me because I think part of what I love is the fact that you can, especially with retrospectives, you can sit with someone involved in the making of a film and they can reflect on it. And I've sat next to him watching some of his old films. I watched Flash Gordon at an outdoor screening in Bristol a couple of mm. years ago where he's from. And I watched him looking up at the screen laughing and him telling me all these things about the making of it. And I just think that magic of being with people yeah. And sharing your own knowledge about a film mm. before or after is what I think we're all desperate for. So I really hope things will be OK. And it's just a matter of keeping going for those next few yeah, weeks. Yeah, we've got a few more. We've got about two months to go, I think. But whether there'll be any films or not, it'll all be dependent on whether America opens up. Um, but because obviously if they don't release the films. Yeah. I mean, the main thing we've been doing uh, when we were open was... Um, event cinema's greatest hits because event cinema for us is a big thing i mean obviously yeah. different people have different <laughs> feelings about whether that's good but if it brings audiences in I, you know it's fine by me to be honest you yeah know, no i know stuff. that's why i know the james bond film is a big blow i do know it's yeah. yeah triple blow now isn't it they're gonna keep moving it but i um, think i mean my sort of final take on it is that um I think actually this third lockdown may have oddly in the long run done us a bit of a favour. Because? Well, because the novelty of seeing films at home has really worn off now. I agree. <laughs> I really, you're right. This The first lockdown, people were probably getting into it. And yeah. now, actually, yeah. you're right, it's worn yeah. off. Yeah. And and oddly, like the VHS, you know, I get in the back of a cab, they worm out of you that you're in cinema and they go, yeah, well, them videos and they, they finished you off. And actually... They didn't in many ways for the simple reason that people became better educated about films, which meant that they wanted to see more films. And when they wanted to see them, they wanted to see them the best way possible. So it actually oddly has a knock on effect. I think we just have to hope that the big money higher ups don't screw us over. That's, you know, of, of, of taking the product away from us. Well, that's, that's a really astute observation. Yeah, you know. So anyway, yeah. well, thank you, Samira. Oh, that was my pleasure. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Well, thanks and for letting me reminisce and reminding yeah. me why I love cinema, <laughs> and I'm really rooting for you. I'm looking so, forward to when it's it, over. It, I'll come and check you out. Oh no, you must come down and see us. Thanks. Anything you want to show, come down and we'll show it. Oh, I'll have a think. <laughs> that's a really lovely invitation. Yes. that and I can't thank Samira enough for agreeing to come on the podcast I love hearing people's cinema experiences it's so different from watching the telly isn't it you know you sit there in your pants you've been there all day you've got Christmas day head and then you think oh I'll watch that <laughs> there's nothing special about it is there come on at least in the cinema you don't get Christmas day head anyway I digress Thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. I know I bang on about that, but it, it's quite important. Or it's, it would be nice to get a um, um, the, a more visible podcast. That would be lovely. And but I do appreciate your support, and I do appreciate you listening. It really does mean quite a lot to me. Um, and you can always message me at Kevin Markwick on Twitter or email the show at podcast at pitchhouseupfield.com. It would be lovely to hear from you. It looks like we're going to be open in May. If everything goes to plan. I'm in the over 55s and haven't had my vaccine yet, but then I'm so fit and healthy and good looking. I'm probably going to be one of the last. That may not actually be true. But anyway, uh, we got, I've got a few more recordings to do in the next week or two, which I'm very excited about, and hopefully you'll tune in for those. Um, and anyway, do keep listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>